Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 28. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. Now, if we've been following the war in Ukraine closely in the last few months, we'll have seen it's been a story of advancing and retreating on both sides. Just yesterday, we heard news of Russians withdrawing from Kurzon, and there's been much celebrating in Ukraine in the last few days. But officials have warned that the war is not over yet. Territory has been taken and lost, and sometimes retaken and relost. But the aim has been uh, to secure territory that lasts. Or think of political territory. This week in the US midterms, Democrats have held more seats than perhaps they thought, and they've held the Senate. But how are they going to make sure they keep those voters, especially in two years' time? And what about spiritual territory? In Acts 13 and 14, the gospel has advanced amongst the nations of the world for the very first time. But how is it going to be secured there? And how might they go on to take more territory from there? What do we need to do here to make sure that in 20 years' time, people can hear the gospel when they come to St. Helens? And what can we do to make sure that we continue to be a part of bringing the light of the world to the nations? I'll play our small part in it. To recap the last few weeks, uh, back at the beginning of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from Antioch. Their operation is to be the light of the world. Their mission statement in chapter 13, verse 47, is this, that I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And this is a pioneering work in world history. It breaks the final frontier of gospel advance If you're following Jesus here today, and you didn't start doing that in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, um, this is why you have, because of this journey. But it also sets the pattern for all subsequent Christian generations. And unlike, say, Nelson or Napoleon's battlefield strategies, uh, which you might find interesting on a historical level, but you won't find a cavalry charge in Ukraine, Paul and Barnabas' strategy is absolutely textbook still in 2022. And if you're ever in charge of teaching uh, the teaching material at a world missions conference, there'd be no better place to go than Acts 13 and 14. Or if you want to train your workplace Christian group on being a light in the workplace, these would be ideal passages to study. Or if you want to find out um, why Christian colleagues want to invite you to a cow service so much, um, this would be a text to get your head around. And it's a perfectly shaped teaching unit. I wonder if you'd start where it started. There's a short summary on the right-hand side of your handout, if that's helpful. After Paul and Barnabas are sent off, um, module one is to understand that we're in a spiritual war zone in chapter 13, verse 4 to 12. Sometimes we could think spiritual warfare is only about demonic possession, 
And at worst, it's effectively infantilized, a sort of spiritual Halloween. But the devil is primarily at work today trying to stop people believing in Jesus. That is why we find being a public Christian hard sometimes. The devil is opposing us at every stage, trying to keep the world in darkness. And that's why next we see it's about a word of salvation. That's Paul's great sermon in chapter 13. And people are confused about this, aren't they? I don't know if people you know are. I find it depressing when people find out that I work for a church and they think I either work for a food bank or do social work or do a bit of marriage counselling. And I try and tell them, actually, I speak to people about Jesus Christ. We're in a salvation business, forgiveness, life with Jesus now, and eternal life to come. This is a work, a word of salvation we're involved in. And as we said, it's the turning point in history we see next, as this word is spoken to the whole world. Anyone can receive this word of salvation anywhere, at any time, from anybody. We can be very entitled or maybe used to hearing this truth, but that isn't taken for granted. This wasn't the case until Paul and Barnabas went out into Turkey. And then when we see what the gospel looks like when it does advance, we see the gospel word triumphs amidst suffering. It really does triumph. People from all over the world, as they accept the gospel, are brought out of darkness and into light. They've turned from vain idolatry to know the living God. And we all aren't dancing around Stonehenge here this evening. But this conquering of light over darkness follows the same pattern as the Lord Jesus' triumph on the cross. It comes through suffering. The triumph of the gospel word is not triumphalistic. As we see, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And we finished up last time with Paul and Barnabas heading to Derby, uh, not Derby, as I said last week. And in verse 21, we see that he preached, and they preached the gospel in that city and made many disciples. And if you look at that map on your handout there, you see that Paul's planned his journey pretty well. It'd make quite a good trip advisor recommendation or a travel blog. He's on a nice circular route that has gone through most of the notable cities in Turkey, and now he's got a direct route back to his sending base in Antioch. He could even pop back to see mum and dad in Tarsus on the way home. They always appreciate that. And most notably, for the first time, the lights have overcome the darkness, and people have turned to salvation in the Lord Jesus, and where they never have before. And we might think, there we go, that must be it, job done, isn't it? We're ready to pop open the bubbly and celebrate what God has done. But the answer is no, or not quite yet. He doesn't go straight back to base. The work is not done until what happens, uh, what recorded is happening in verses 21 to 23. And the headline is at the end of 21 into 22. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples. There's a straight line to the finish line ahead, but Paul turns back around, retraces his steps, adding at least 300 miles to his journey, going to all the places that he was just chucked out of months before. And why does he do that? To strengthen the souls of the disciples. The work of being the light of the world is not done. The champagne cannot be opened until the work is secured until he's done this work of strengthening. It is indispensable to Jesus' plan of gospel advance. 
And sometimes, if you're anything like me, you can think of Paul as a bit of a jet setter, ticking off one ancient Near Eastern city uh, one weekend break at a time. But the text of Acts tells us nothing of the sort. Paul is much more of a church builder than a church planter. Churches are never planted in the Bible, and the word of God is planted in the Bible. Churches are built in the Bible, as we're thinking about this evening. And we're going to see that Paul isn't a cowboy builder. He doesn't leave something behind that looks good on the surface. But if you look under the cracks, it's full of shortcuts and weaknesses. Paul is wanting to be involved in church building that lasts. So before we get to celebrating, the first thing we must understand properly is strengthening. That is the final part of the blueprint of gospel advance in verse 21. We'll look at that again. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul was no um, Ricky Martin. He was no one-hit wonder. He cared deeply about all those who believed in the Lord Jesus on his travels, and he wanted to see them strengthened and keep going. Paul was a church builder, not a church planter. He wasn't looking to produce the spiritual equivalent of a prefab, um, flimsy structure. He was building something that was built to last. And what does strengthening the souls of the disciples practically involve? Well, it seems it would involve what he has been doing, speaking the word of the Lord. And we see he continues to do that in verse 25. And that's confirmed by what we see if we just turn over the page um, to chapter 15, verse 32. We'll see more about this in a few weeks' time. But while these Jerusalem Christians were in Antioch, it tells us in verse 32, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Or just a bit further down, what Paul and Barnabas are doing to the same church in verse 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. To strengthen and encourage believers is to speak, to teach, to preach and the word of God to them about the Lord Jesus. As Paul says later in Acts 20, I commend you to God and the word of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those that are sanctified. And it's worth thinking for a moment, what are the consequences if this strengthening work didn't happen? First, would those churches even exist in a few years' time? Without strengthening, could they have survived the sort of pressure we saw them experiencing a few weeks ago? Could you survive without people encouraging you about the Lord Jesus? Um, I know I couldn't. Just one poignant example for me. Um, When I was a teenager, my late teenage years, from 16 to about 19 years old, I found it very difficult to be a Christian, and humanly speaking, I could have uh, easily seen myself walking away. But there was one Christian teacher at my school who first noticed me, um, then spent three years going out of his way to painstakingly encourage me uh, to keep me involved, invite me to his church, and to invite me to Sunday lunch at his house, and to keep encouraging me to keep going and with the Lord Jesus. And it's something I think I'll be eternally grateful to him for. Second, um, would they ever be able to expand? So it's not just about surviving. Jesus' ultimate aim was that the gospel would be the light to the world, not just the light of Turkey. And he knew he could not achieve that through Paul and Barnabas alone. 
He needed these churches to be strengthened in the gospel so they could send their own people out to continue his great work. Paul's job was not to make converts, but to make disciples. A disciple at his or her core is a learner or an apprentice. They are to learn and to practice what Paul taught and exemplified about the Lord Jesus. They were to learn what it means to be a light of the world and to persevere in doing that. And that was not going to happen naturally without any sort of strengthening. And that is a large part, as we've seen in verse 22, because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is something Paul knows better than anyone, and with the severity of the tribulations that he faced. He says he will fa- that we'll all face them in one way or another. And if you're anything like me, although there is um, no greater privilege than being a Christian, to know that we're forgiven, to know Jesus Christ, to look forward to seeing him face to face one day, rather than knowing we must face him unforgiven, and to have Jesus involved in every part of our lives, um, which makes every aspect of my life better. And thinking of living without him is quite frankly a terrifying thought for me. But even so, it can at times feel like it's not that easy to be a Christian, whether that's facing and some opposition from those we know, or just the general pressures of life, or facing some of the horrid effects of my own sin. I often need strengthening by the words of God's grace. It's what I'm trying to do now, and it's what I hope we're all trying to do when we're at RML or in our Bible studies, because it's a continuing and a deep engagement with the word of God that strengthens us, that builds us up into maturity, that strengthens us to stay the course. And Paul in this, he's no First World War general um, in his armchair uh, behind the front lines. He set an example for us. Um, Officers in the British Navy a couple of hundred years ago, um, like someone like Nelson, uh, used to be famous for, uh, during uh, battles as the cannonballs were flying, uh, standing straight on deck uh, with their uniform on, um, shiny badges and all. Um, They weren't allowed to duck for cover whatever happened. And Paul sets an example uh, as a Christian, and in Christian leadership in particular, by keeping going in the face of opposition. He doesn't ask uh, us to do anything that he isn't willing to do himself. But if I can put it like this, as much as he was like Nelson, he was also like Napoleon, as well as being a a very able tactician. Um, What uh, stood Napoleon out from others was he took an intense interest in all his men's welfare. When he visited regiments, he would do his utmost to make sure the needs of all his troops were met. He took hours speaking to many of them individually to making sure they were fully equipped. And across a vast array of forces, he remembered many, many people's names and knew of the children and their family situations. There's one occasion where he greeted um, a soldier by name and asked how his daughter was getting on I think about a certain illness. And this soldier was amazed because the only time that he'd met Napoleon before was on his doorstep when Napoleon had a problem with his horse and he stopped for a few minutes to ask about this man's life. But that was over a decade before. Now I imagine that Paul was the sort of person that when he went back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, he cared deeply about those who professed to know the Lord Jesus and remembered many of those who he had spoken the gospel to. And he wanted to be part of a building project that lasts. He didn't want want the light of the gospel to just fizzle out in Galatia. 
He wanted to see it secured and spread. Paul wasn't a one-hit wonder. He wasn't a cowboy builder. He went back to strengthen and encourage the disciples with the word of God. And if you read through the rest of Acts, you can see he does these journeys, these strengthening journeys, again and again. So you can look just for your notes at 15 verse 41 or 18 verse 23, for example. And it seems to me, and I guess it slightly depends how you define it, that Paul spends at least as much time, if not more, explicitly doing strengthening work than he does what people call pioneer evangelism, um, which I think is worth pondering. But at the same time, I wonder he'd even quite accept such a hard distinction as both those activities, and Paul is speaking about the Lord Jesus to people, the word of God. I was speaking to uh, William about this passage this week, and he was saying about how this emphasis in Acts has changed the way that um, St. Helens has approached sending people out to build churches. 20 years ago or more, when new congregations started, uh, we sort of cut the umbilical cord straight away, um, as it were. But more recently, we've done things a bit differently. Um, When Kev Murdoch was sent out uh, with a team uh, to Euston, instead of just completely leaving them to it, one of the senior gospel workers here at the time regularly visited and helped them and mentored Kev and some of the other guys for a few years. And once a month, um, church teams that have been sent out from here are invited back to join our staff meetings on a Tuesday, um, where we're often and we're always uh, taught from the word of God together. The idea being that we mutually strengthen and encourage one another, as verse 22 has it, to continue in the faith. And knowing what being a Christian is like, um, we're crazy individually or corporately if we don't seek to keep connected to others and be strengthened and play our part in strengthening, speaking and teaching and preaching the word of God to others. And I wonder if um, studying this closely puts to death the myth of what so-called church planters are meant to be like. I've had the privilege of going to a number of conferences for church leaders, um, not just in the UK, but further afield. And it often happens to be the case that when it starts to be spoken, church planting starts to be talked about, the people who are asked to speak or interviewed, they have a beard, uh, normally a very long beard, and lots of tattoos. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong uh, with beards or tattoos, uh, well, uh, well, most beards. Um, but um, as Tim very helpfully ha- has anticipated on the map at this point, um, as you can see there, one of Paul or Barnabas has a beard and the other does not. Um, the beard is not an occupational requirement. And the personality types of su- that were supposedly required for church planting, I think might need to be reassessed as well. You don't need to be an ENFP, GD tips, or whatever it is. Um, And you don't need to be the sort of person that likes wrestling bears at the weekend or score church planter on one of the multiple choice church personality tests. Actually, um, I wonder if the questions are, do you care about people deeply? Can you strengthen people? Can you teach the word of God in order to mature believers in a way that sees them built up? Can you set an example worth following? What do you think that Paul was looking for in someone seeking to build a church? Actually, part of strengthening um, Paul seems to do here is looking for people just like that in verse 23, as Paul went about the task of structuring as well. Verse 23. And when they had appointed elders from them in every church, 
With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul appointed elders in every church. At this stage, churches were most likely multiple extended households and meeting together. And Paul didn't ask for them to vote for their leaders. He appointed a certain people to positions of overall leadership. Presumably those who could do what he was doing, strengthening with the word of God and setting an example to the believers. Part of strengthening involves structuring the church to work well. And lastly, just note the biggest difference between securing a political or a physical territory and in the work of making disciples to the ends of the earth. Um, You can fully depend on the Lord who saved them. Verse 23 again. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, I'm not sure this is quite right, but the best phrase I could think of for describing Paul and Barnabas' strengthening work here is striving dependence. It's a long way from let go and let God. They've gone out of their way to do everything they can to strengthen the believers. But they do it while at the same time depending on the Lord Jesus, who saved all those believers to start with, and as he continues to reign from his heavenly throne. They don't have a Messiah complex. And they don't have the weight of their world entirely on their shoulders. And I bet they get good sleep lots of nights. They know it's all down to Jesus, ultimately, and not to them. Yet they do strive, and they do what they can to do the work Jesus has asked them to do. Because without the strengthening work, um, the lights would go out, and the mission would fail, and the operation life of the world would come to a halt. And it's only when this part of the work is done that Paul and Barnabas can head back to base and finally report on a job well done. So secondly, uh, and much more briefly, um, now uh, they can celebrate. It's time to finally get the crystal out and open the moe, and this is what they do in verse 26 and 27. And from there they sail to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Antioch was the church that sent them uh, to do the work. And now, verse 26, that work had been fulfilled. And fulfilled here is saying more than a job well done. It tracks with what our author Luke has been writing about, actually for his gospel and in Acts. Right back in Luke 1, verse 1, he tells us he's writing about what has been fulfilled among us. The things God had said he would do, he indeed did achieve through the Lord Jesus. Luke wrote up a careful account from eyewitness testimony, including his own. And he said that he's done this so that we might have certainty, confidence, so we can be absolutely sure about what he writes about the Lord Jesus. And here, Jesus, through his servants, Paul and Barnabas, has fulfilled the promise that God's salvation would be a light of the world. That mission statement from Isaiah was spoken 600 or so years before. And it hadn't come to pass until this point. But now, as a result of this journey, it had. There it is again. It says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Or as Paul and Barnabas report it in verse 27, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, first people in Turkey, but by logical consequence, also people in Tajikistan or even Tower Hamlets, through the word of God, are welcomed 
into the house of faith. That is what God had always promised to do, and it's now happening. Now is the time for the light of salvation to be advancing to the ends of the earth. And I think it's just worth pausing to think about what you make of that. Um, If you're following the Lord Jesus, or if you're not yet doing that, Isaiah said those words, that the Lord God of the Bible be worshipped all over the world in about 600 BC, or a bit before that. And at the time, um, only one small nation uh, worshipped that God. And even most of that nation were not trusting in him for salvation anymore. And Isaiah said it would get worse before it got better, and it did. Um, Israel as a nation were conquered, and they were deported from their land. And in, in the midst of that, Um, As I said, one day, um, this mission statement, that this God would be worshipped all over the world, um, to the ends of the earth, that that would come to pass. Um, I think if you were around in the 7th century BC, you'd find that laughable. But what do you make of that? Because it did undeniably happen. These are incontrovertible facts. Isaiah said it would happen, and we have texts of Isaiah from well before the 1st century, And what Paul and Barnabas started in the 40s AD has continued ever since to the tune of two billion people claiming um, the Lord Jesus as their God today. And we are here today, as Isaiah said we would be. You have to account for that in some way historically. And surely if you're not following the Lord Jesus, and that's worth looking into a bit further. But as we said, in one sense, this journey in Acts is a one-off work Um, It's now been fulfilled. It's pioneering. The final frontier only gets breached once. The door of faith to the Gentiles was opened. But this fulfillment has ongoing implications because the door remains open. And Paul's activity is not only pioneering, but it sets a pattern for all Christian believers. We've already seen in previous weeks that Paul is the light of the world through his apostolic word about the Lord Jesus. And then in verse, chapter 13, verse 49, it's also the non-apostles that spread that word, ordinary believers, around the whole region of Pamphylia. And then in our passage in verse 22, Paul does think his experience of tribulations is normative, and is normal for the Christian life. And the logic of what strengthening is suggests that Paul is not uniquely able to do this. We can all be strengthening each other and with the word of God. And there are another of other aspects, I think, in this closing section of the journey we can learn from, that we're meant to learn from as a pattern for us. And briefly, we're to remember that kingdom building is God's work. Notice that they were commended to the grace of God. And as earlier on, advancing the kingdom is always God's work. The church in Antioch, they did send Paul and Barnabas, but it was the grace of God they looked to for the power to complete the task. And Paul and Barnabas knew that in verse 27. When they reported back to base, they declared that all that God had done through them, not what they had done. And notice it's something the whole church were involved in. There was leadership in the church. We saw that in 13, 1 to 3. They took a lead in sending Paul and Barnabas out. But Paul assumes that the whole church want to hear the operation report. He gathered them all. And surely during this trip, they'd been praying for Paul and Barnabas. They probably helped provide the funds for it amongst other support. Isn't it exciting to be able to be involved in the real work of God in the world today? And if you've recently arrived at St. Helens, um, do get stuck in with the work of God here. 
Obviously, that starts with encouraging people here and on RML uh, during the week. That's central to the work of church building. But there are lots of other opportunities as well to serve others. Um, One example, our monthly prayer supper on the last Monday of every month is the place where we do the sort of thing what we see read about in verse 27, where we hear about and pray for all God is doing with the church family and for those who have been sent out from here. The work of God involves all of us, and we can be used by the Lord Jesus, just like that church in Antioch was. Um, So don't miss out um, on that. And as we close finally, just notice the continued pattern of Paul again in verse 28. And they remained no little time with the disciples. And I don't think it's a big secret what they did. I don't know what you think, but I imagine they strengthened the disciples. They were not rushing off. This is a task of supreme importance. Not a one-hit wonder, not a cowboy builder. The work of making worldwide disciples is only secured through strengthening. That's what happened on this pioneering journey, and it's a pattern we're all to follow. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you've opened the door of faith to the whole world, and thank you that that includes us. Help us not to be naive in what we need to keep going as Christians and in your gospel work. Please help us to be a church that looks to strengthen one another and other believers, especially in supporting ones we have sent out. And in your kindness, might we see your light continue to bring life in London and beyond. Amen.